This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Thumbelina by Hans Christian Andersen. And you'll see that if you have to kidnap wives for your slimy frog son who lives in your basement, something somewhere in your parenting has gone horribly wrong. The creature this time is all-you-can-eat fries. As long as you don't mind them coming in the form of little oily shrimp that also kind of tastes like tartar sauce. This is Myths and Legends, episode 111, Sweet Summer Child. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is a literary fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen, the Danish writer of The Little Mermaid, The Ugly Duckling, The Snow Queen, The Emperor's New Clothes, The Princess and the Pea, and more. And we're just going to jump right in with a woman who hopes to be a mother, making a poorly advised decision of requesting a child from her local witch. I have my heart set upon having a tiny little child. Please, will you tell me where I can find one? The woman asked. At this point, the witch, sitting across from her, face-palmed. There was so much to unpack here. First, the woman didn't know where she could, quote, find a child. She did know that children weren't usually found, right? Unless you were an ogre. But even then, you're stealing them. They're ma- mm. You know what? The witch was going to give her a redo on this request. Try again, honey. Just be really sure of every word because there was a right way, and a definitely wrong way, to ask a witch for a child. And that first performance, that was the wrong way. The woman sat confused. She had her heart set on having a tiny little child. Where could she find one? The witch produced a piece of barley. Not going to change anything about the request then. Alright. She wanted a tiny little child? Fine. Here's what the woman needed to do. Take this barley, plant it in a flower pot, and she'll have a kid. The woman rose quickly to her feet, hugged the old witch, and whispered, Thank you! Surprised by the lack of any follow-up questions whatsoever, the witch shrugged, collected her 12-penny copay, and told the woman, Really? Good luck out there. When the woman returned home, she planted the barley, and mere weeks later, it had already started to flower. Within a few months... It was a full-grown tulip, and yes, I'm aware barley seeds don't make tulips, but here we are. Stranger still was the fact that the flower reached full size, but remained a bud. Its petals were folded in tight. Still, it was beautiful, and the woman was so happy about it that she leaned in to kiss it. As soon as her lips touched it, however, it popped. In surprise, the woman fell backwards catching sight of the flower blooming wide as she toppled to the ground. It was astonishing. There stood the most beautiful tulip she had ever seen. And it was moving? It was moving. Stepping closer, she nearly fainted. Inside the tulip lay a baby. A tiny baby, no bigger than the new mom's fingernail. A tiny little child. Oh. If this story sounds familiar, well, 
it's inspired by the British story of Tom Thumb, one we covered a few weeks ago in episode 108. But unlike Tom's two parents, here we have a capable single mother, well up to the challenge of raising this tiny, tiny baby on her own. The new mom waited to name the girl until she was a little bigger. A very little bit bigger, actually. The mom called her Thumbelina because the girl was no bigger than her thumb. She was creative, but you know, not especially creative. Writers of stories about thumb-sized children get a kick out of describing stuff that the children use. For instance, the mom polished a walnut shell for a cradle with a mattress of blue violet petals. The girl rode around on a single flower petal boat using only white horsehairs for oars. Thumbelina and her mother were happy. They lived in peace in the forest. The mother had everything she had ever wanted with Thumbelina, and Thumbelina only knew happiness with her mother. Then, the window broke. The mother was out early that morning, while Thumbelina still slept. It was so early, and Thumbelina was sleeping so soundly that she didn't hear the frog smash through the window and land with a wet slap on the table. The frog had been watching this little one for days. She knew the mother's schedule well. Incidentally, the frog also knew when the girl was alone. In a split second, the frog intruder scooped the entire bed up in one of her slimy frog arms and leapt out the window. Hey, so I have a surprise for you, the mother frog announced later that day. Mom, you have to knock when you come in my room, okay, I told you. What is it? The frog mom shared that she knew her son hated it when she gave him a hard time about his love life. But she met someone who would be perfect for him. She was a little young, basically still a toddler, but she would grow to love her son, literally and figuratively. The frog son shrugged. Yeah, sure, whatever. This was good. The mom liked his enthusiasm, and so the amphibious matchmaker went to work, preparing a nice new mud apartment for her son and his future tiny flower woman wife. To keep Thumbelina safe slash captive, they placed her on a nice little leaf island prison in the middle of the lake. When she awoke that morning, in a lake with a frog staring over her and not in her warm, quiet house surrounded by flowers, she screamed. And the next few weeks were weird. The little girl grew to like flies. I mean, it wasn't like she really had a choice, but no matter how much she tried, she just couldn't grow to like her husband-to-be. The sun frog took one look at the girl his mom had kidnapped to be his wife, and despite the sentence I just said where his mom had to kidnap a girlfriend for him, he decided that he was ready for marriage. Because nothing's quite as normal as preparing your bridal bed for your kidnapped bride with your mom, the frog son did exactly that. Finally, the day of his marriage arrived. Frog mom and son swam back to the center of the pond and saw Thumbelina, sunburned and tear-streaked, resigned to her fate. She had tried screaming out to everyone, but the frogs lived in this part of the lake alone. She could only weep to the fish, who couldn't surface long enough to talk to her. All Thumbelina could do was watch in despair as her slimy betrothed swam over and took hold of the stem of her leaf cell and started swimming toward their new apartment. The part of the pond where Thumbelina had been kept was a small, stagnant pool. It was chosen because there was no flow, no place for the leaf to go. As the leaf left the pond, however, she could instantly feel the currents all around her boat. She could also feel something else. The fish, 
the only ones that have ventured into the stagnant water to hear her lamentations were nipping at the boat, her boat, at the stem. They were biting at the only thing to connect her to her frog husband-to-be. Her heart raced as she dared to hope. When the stem began to break, Thumbelina worried that the frog some would turn around, see what was going on, and grab the leaf. But he didn't. He didn't even notice when Thumbelina's leaf broke free, and, pulled by the current, followed the quickly flowing stream away from the frog. She was out of sight before he even looked back. From there, Thumbelina drifted. She might not have any control over where she was or where she was headed, but she wasn't a captive any longer, and she wasn't going to marry a frog who lived in his mom's basement. So, all in all, drifting aimlessly in the dangerous wilderness was a massive improvement. Thumbelina listened to the birds singing all around her as the sun warmed her leaf, traveling swiftly downstream. (sighs) It was good to be going... somewhere... A white butterfly fluttered down, close to the water, and Thumbelina smiled. How beautiful. Oh, it took her a moment, but she realized that the butterfly was offering her a lift. With that, Thumbelina looped her sash, now a little worn and tattered, around the body of the butterfly. The insect fluttered softly and towed Thumbelina's boat along. They were now speeding along the bubbling stream, putting even more distance between her and the frog family. Things were really looking up now, Relaxing, the girl looped her end of the sash around what was left of the leaf stem, smiled, and sat back. That was when she felt the legs. First, they wrapped around her mouth so she couldn't scream. Then segmented black legs gripped around her abdomen and legs, cinching her tightly, and off she went. Pressed against the fly's hairy, stinking body, Thumbelina watched in silent agony as her boat and butterfly disappeared down the stream. It's here that the original story so kindly tells us that the white butterfly would never be able to free herself from the leaf boat and would now starve to death because the world is apparently darkness and we all die alone. The maybug, aka the doodlebug, aka the cockchafer, set Thumbelina down hard on a leaf by his home. Thumbelina scrambled to the edge, but froze upon seeing that she was dozens of feet up in the air. The only path to safety was via the stem that attached the leaf to the tree, but Slick with dew, she might as well just jump if she was going to try that route. Her captor, the fly, sat and inspected her, telling her not to be afraid. She was only his captive forever now. He thought that she was so beautiful, BTW. As though remembering his manners, the fly buzzed away, quickly circling back with some honey stuck to his nasty fly legs, which he appetizingly smeared on the leaf and told her to enjoy. And that was when the air filled with lots of buzzing, Despite the honey coming from the maybug's leg, Thumbelina figured that the gesture was sweet, and an upgrade from eating fly fillets every night with the frogs. So she ate it all as the maybug zipped down to the lower branch. Below, Thumbelina could hear hushed tones. Wait, she's here? The girl you've been crushing on? The one who was engaged to that frog? Oh my gosh, I have to meet her. There was more buzzing, and soon three maybugs appeared hovering over her in her new leaf prison. Well, here she is, the bug announced to his friends. And they just hovered there. Eventually, one of the friends broke the awkward silence. I'm just going to come right out and say it, okay? I mean, somebody needs to say it. She's ugly. She's like, really ugly. 
I know, hard to hear, but you asked me to be honest after you dated that bird and things really went south. So, this is me being honest. Look at her. No wings, all narrow in the middle like a human, and what, what even are those? Tiny, creepy little eyes and no antennae. Dave, what the heck? Raise the bar. Dave the Doodlebug, a.k.a. Maybug, a.k.a. Cockchafer, blushed about as much as an insect is able to, and then he laughed. So they fall for it. They really thought that he was into this weird little thing? No, he just brought her up here to show how ugly she was. Man, his friends were gullible. Let's go lick trash and vomit all over the place. Yeah, bug stuff. Later, when he returned that evening, he flew straight to Thumbelina's leaf. He was really sorry about what he had said. Maybe the world wasn't ready for a relationship between a maybug and whatever creature Thumbelina happened to be. And also, he was a terrible, terrible coward. It looked like her ride had already taken off and maybe died somewhere, but he could drop her down on the riverbank in the morning. Spring turned into summer, and Thumbelina survived. She found shade and shelter under the flowers, and knitted a small hammock to keep herself off the ground at night. She began to watch for shadows, and listen for the sounds of birds, bugs, and anything else that might want to eat her, or marry her. Unfortunately, Thumbelina had been alive for less than a year, so she had no idea that summers in Denmark didn't last forever. Soon, fall arrived, and the flowers began to wither and die. By the time the first snow fell, Thumbelina no longer feared predators, but the bitter and deadly cold. Somehow, she managed to survive until midwinter by burrowing into the ground, but she knew, either by freezing or starvation, she would soon be dead. The ground around her froze, and she, being less than two inches tall, could only dig so deep. Leave or die, leave or die. It was one or the other. Wrapping a wilted leaf cloak around her shoulders, Thumbelina set bravely off into the forest. Days passed, and on she walked. Eventually, Thumbelina left the forest and entered a field. Her toes numb. She felt that this was the end. That was when she saw the light. It was a small hole not far off, and there was a light glowing from within. It didn't matter who or what it was. Light meant warmth. And so the girl took off running toward the hole. It belonged to a field mouse, who didn't hesitate to invite Thumbelina in and give her half his dinner. She shivered in front of his fireplace and devoured the food, thanking him for his hospitality. She threw the wilted leaf cloak back over her shoulders and started to make for the entryway to the hole, but the mouse stopped her. What was she doing? Well, of course she was going back out there. The mouse shook his head. She couldn't do that. She'd die. She was staying with him this winter. That was final. Thumbelina thanked the mouse for his kindness and for letting her stay with him for free. He said absolutely. All she had to do was keep the place spotless and tell him stories. Thumbelina was confused. Tell him stories? Like, how many? The mouse shrugged. One a week? Maybe an extra one a month if he paid her? If one story couldn't anchor a weekly session, she could just do a bunch of small ones centered around the same theme. The girl thought about it. Yeah, okay. That seemed doable. Maybe she could even do it long term if that was all she was doing and Thumbelina settled in for the first warm night all season long. We'll 
We'll see how Thumbelina's new storytelling gig goes, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time, Thumbelina said, finishing up the week's story. She knew the mouse wasn't crazy about being left on a cliffhanger for these multi-part stories, but there was no way she could talk for two hours straight. Later, the mouse pulled her aside, which was odd because it had only ever been the two of them there. The mouse looked earnest. They've had a good couple of months, right? He ventured. Thumbelina nodded. Yeah. And she was single, right? Thumbelina's shoulders slumped. Oh, all right. Here it comes. She held up a hand before her host could finish. Motioning between them, Thumbelina expressed that she saw him only as a friend. He did too, of course. Wait, oh no, 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 no. That's not what he was talking about at all. He likes spending time with her, naturally, but he didn't think of her that way. No offense, but he was a mouse and she was a... Actually, what was she? Human thing? Fairy? Thumbelina admitted that she had no idea, but was relieved. So, what did the mouse want to talk about? That was when he grew nervous. He hoped she wouldn't be mad, but he had sort of planned a blind date for her. He could see she was getting upset about this, and he should have talked to her first, but the guy, uh, he was a real catch. He had a massive house with warm, spacious rooms. He always wore a thick velvet coat. Also, it was kind of a blind date in more ways than one because he was actually blind. Her date, it seemed, was a mole. As if on cue, a rumbling began as one of the walls crumbled outward, revealing a wide, flat hand with long yellow claws. Then a nose. Then almost invisible tiny black eyes. And finally, thick dark velvet fur. The mole barreled into the room and felt both the warmth and his mouse friend's face before he realized where he was. The mouse peered down the long, dark tunnel, quite annoyed to have to put a new door in, but at least he could leave his house safely now. The mole introduced himself to Thumbelina, and after only a few words, he fell in love with her voice. He didn't say anything yet, however. He was a most discreet and classy fellow, after all. And, being such a discreet and classy fellow, his next topic of conversation was asking everyone if they had passed that dead bird on their trip in. Seeing as neither of them had dug their way in, and the mole had only just that day made the hole, no, no they did not. The mole laughed. Oh, they had to see it. Mr. Mouse gathered some old wood and handed Thumbelina a torch. They followed the wide, velvety creature down his hole until Thumbelina saw a mass lying up ahead in the shadows. She remembered the spring months, hearing the songbirds all around her as she floated down the river, pulled along by that surely dead-by-now butterfly. She also remembered growing up hearing birds outside her family's small cottage, singing sweet songs about her. She loved birds. The mole spoke up, bringing her back to the present. He guessed that the bird had fallen to the ground midwinter and was somehow covered up. It was definitely dead, though. Gosh, how rare to see them underground like this. Maybe some more light would show it off more. He climbed to the roof of his tunnel and made a hole so the daylight could come down and illuminate the bird. The mole chuckled as he kicked the body a couple times. 
Birds, am I right? Yeah, they sing sweetly, but they die in winter. So, you know, moles are better. The mouse pulled his soft friend aside. When he suggested that his friend up his game, um, showing a girl a dead bird in a cold tunnel wasn't exactly what he meant. The mole sighed and crossed his arms. Okay, and he just wasn't supposed to share things that he was interested in with the woman he was into? The mouse patted his friend's shoulder. No, absolutely, just not dead birds? And not when the women do that. Mr. Mouse looked back to Thumbelina, who knelt weeping over the dead bird. Goodbye, you pretty little bird, she said. Goodbye, and thank you for your sweet songs last summer, when the trees were all green and the sun shone so warmly upon us. The pair decided to give her a minute, and so they walked back to the mouse's hole. After they were gone, she rested her hands on his feathers and gasped. There was a heartbeat. The bird was alive. Swallow drank a bit of water in a flower petal and ate some bread as he struggled to push himself up on his wings. That's when Thumbelina froze. She thought she heard something back at the mouse's house. For some reason, both the mouse and the mole hated the swallow. Perhaps it was because, unlike them, the swallow could leave the ground. He could fly and sing. The pair frequently talked about how ridiculous birds were, singing in the spring and running away as soon as it got cold. Birds were weak. For weeks, Thumbelina had been nursing the swallow back to health. The pair would talk through the night as Thumbelina tended to his wing, and the swallow pretended to be dead during the day when the mole came by. Soon, the sun began to warm the dirt in the tunnels, and the swallow knew it was time for him to go. He offered Thumbelina a ride on his back. He could take the little human thing, whatever she was, far away from here. All Thumbelina had to do was say the word. The girl thought about soaring in the sky for the briefest minute. She was tempted, but then she remembered her friend, the mouse. It was the only home she had ever known since her kidnapping, and to leave without a word to the mouse would break his heart. He was a true friend, and she enjoyed staying in his home, and even her little storytelling gig, even if she did have to dodge marriage proposals from the mole. Besides, with the spring here, she could get out more and hear the birds. Yeah, her place was on the ground. Thumbelina thanked the bird for the offer, then climbed the walls of the tunnel and broke away the dirt the mole had replaced earlier that winter. Blinding rays of sun came in, and the swallow chirped twice and took off, soaring up through the trees. Spring was good. Thumbelina spent nearly all her time outdoors, where the mole wouldn't bug her, but he was getting more and more persistent at night. Her mouse friend supported her, saying that it was her choice. One night, she came in to find him sitting at the table. He had told the mole not to stop by that night. Thumbelina thanked him, but stone-faced, he told her to sit down. They needed to have a talk. Did Thumbelina enjoy having a home? One greatly expanded now to contain both a breakfast nook and a finished basement, thanks to the mole. Hesitantly, the girl nodded. Was the mole such a bad guy? 
Thumbelina was quick to shake her head. No, she just didn't like him. They had nothing in common. He ate grubs and loved cold, dark tunnels, while she loved flowers and sunlight. It wasn't anything against him. She just wasn't into him. The mouse nodded. So nothing was wrong with him, but she still would never give him a chance? Thumbelina stood. She could see where this was going. If that was going to be the cost of living here, she could find somewhere else. She had been without a home before, and she could do it again. The mouse propped his feet back on the table. Go ahead then. Leave. She wouldn't get far. Thumbelina froze. What? Mr. Mouse started picking a claw between his teeth. His front teeth, you see, his incisors actually, grew constantly. If he couldn't gnaw, his teeth would grow to the point where he would die. That meant that they were awfully sharp and very strong. He squinted and made a measurement in the air. Thumbelina was what, an inch and a half tall? To say that these mouse teeth would go through her like butter was an insult to butter. Thumbelina shuddered and glanced at the door. With the wave of his hand, the mouse told her to go ahead. Run. He was twice her size, and he never got to play the predator. It would be fun. The girl stood motionless. At last, the mouse sighed. So, he would ask again. How did she feel about marrying the mole? Thumbelina's lips quivered. The mouse stood, knocking over his chair and moved closer. He didn't hear her. She, she would marry the mole. What's that? She would marry the mole. Now the mouse smiled, revealing his long, sharp teeth. That was so nice to hear. He would tell his friend tomorrow. After that, the mouse slept by the door. Thumbelina didn't trust the mole's labyrinthine tunnels enough to try to escape that way, and on the days he let her out, the mouse stayed close. Thumbelina's marriage to the mole was set for autumn, and the mouse kindly used his free time to knit her a wedding dress. It actually didn't take long. She was so tiny. The whole time, though, he would talk about how great the mole was, how spacious his house was, and well-stocked his pantry. She should be grateful he was almost blind. She was lucky, lucky to be marrying him. It was so great that she had come around. In early autumn, the three found a spot in the field that had already been harvested. It was nothing but the stubble of crops past, foreshadowing the desolation of winter to come. Thumbelina wept as the mole, hating every minute of being out in the warm sunlight, stood by the altar. Mr. Mouse was officiating and, man, it would be crazy to see a mole in a tux and a tiny woman in a wedding dress getting married by a mouse, but that's why they chose that part of the field. They knew no humans would be by. Of course, Thumbelina wasn't making any of this easy. Unhappy with being forced under threat of death into a marriage to a mole by a rodent, she cried out, shouting goodbye to the sun and the stars and the flowers and her friend the swallow if the mouse ever saw him again. That was when she heard it. Chirp, chirp. Thumbelina smiled and tried to spin around to greet her old friend, but she couldn't because the swallow had her in his talons and he was flapping his wings. 
Together, they were taking off, leaving the mole standing at the altar. And the mouse, who had just been ordained online for this very purpose, shaking his fist at her and the swallow. The swallow explained that he was so grateful for what Thumbelina had done for him that he had been watching her all summer. She seemed sad, and it was only when he heard her wailing at the wedding that he learned what the mole and the mouse were doing. They landed, and Thumbelina embraced her friend, her true friend, and he gave her an offer. He could either leave her there, free but alone, or he could take her home. She cocked her head. The bird couldn't possibly know where she lived. She didn't even know where she lived. The bird told her to hop on if she wanted to see what he was talking about. Seeing as the bird was the only friend she had left in the world, and she was legitimately very curious, Thumbelina looped her new sash around the bird's neck and climbed aboard. It was a long flight. Thumbelina nodded off several times, but the swallow somehow kept her from falling off his back. By morning, they had arrived. Thumbelina blinked awake and realized that they had been flying all night over the ocean. They were now approaching an island. With a chuckle, the swallow guaranteed it was going to blow Thumbelina's mind. Birds came here every year. They loved this place, mainly because it was warm, but also because, well, you'll see. The bird flapped down into a garden full of beautiful, massive, normal-sized flowers. This was his home. And if Thumbelina liked, she could live there in safety. She leapt from the bird and smelled a flower. When she stood, she saw a man standing there, slack-jawed. The king of flowers, a man Thumbelina's size, had just seen the most beautiful girl in the world. There isn't nearly enough explanation for this, but Thumbelina had chanced onto the land of the flower people, where each flower contained a man or a woman, and this was the king of all the flower people. We don't know if they're related to Thumbelina, or if they're all the result of fiendishly specific witch requests or not, but what we do know is that the king was into her. I know that's not surprising. At this point, it's like, take a number. But what's noteworthy about this was that this was the first man Thumbelina had ever met, that left her speechless. The king walked over to her, took his own golden crown off his head, and placed it on Thumbelina's. He asked her for her hand in marriage right there on the spot. And also, hi, what's your name? Thumbelina gasped. That's when the swallow spoke up. You know, Thumbelina, I feel like maybe there was a lesson to be learned back with the mouse. About people not really being what they seem at first, and it might be great to get to know, oh, Okay, yeah, and you're kissing. Cool, I, well, I'll just see myself out. But the swallow didn't see himself out. She said yes, and Thumbelina and the king asked him to perform at the wedding. And so, of course, the swallow was their wedding singer. Thumbelina couldn't quite believe her life over the last year. She had lost a family, feared for her life several times, and was nearly forced to marry a frog, and a maybug, and a mole. She had also traveled oceans, and now, finally, met someone who loved her for who she was. Or, 
at least was a smoking hot king and not a frog, bug, or mole. That's really the end of the story, except for three points. The story kind of works against its own message about the good guy king when he tells Thumbelina that her name is ugly and unilaterally changes it to Maya without Thumbelina's input. In addition to the crown and a mandatory new name, Thumbelina does get a cool set of silver wings and she can now fly. As for the swallow, despite that really being his home, he never comes back. Because, like every guy in Thumbelina's life except for the mouse, he, too, was into her. Even though the king was a good match, on account of him being a king and also the same species as Thumbelina, the swallow couldn't bear to watch them together. So the next spring, he said goodbye to his dear friend and the woman he loved, and flew off for the country of Denmark. I guess Hans Christian Andersen once ate the heart of a dragon, because he could understand the speech of birds. One morning, he heard the swallow singing a sad song on his windowsill, and invited the creature inside where, over plain untoasted bread or whatever it is you use when hosting birds, Anderson listened to this entire story. When the sparrow left, happy for having gotten that off his chest, Anderson locked the whole thing down. And thus, the story of Thumbelina was written. With this, the Tom Thumb inspirations are obvious. But having read that before Thumbelina, I have to hand it to Anderson. He took that kind of archetypal character and really did something different and cool with it. For as hard a time as I've given him in the past, he does a really good job when it comes to stories of characters figuring themselves out or having the courage to act against what's expected of them. So I've received a lot of emails regarding Anderson's themes in his stories as they relate to the author's own sexuality. I've done a good bit of reading on the subject and the man was complex. There are writers and people that insist that he was gay, some that insist that he was bisexual, and some that say he was asexual. According to his journals and his letters, he seems to have had romantic feelings towards both men and women in his lifetime, and it also seems like he might have remained celibate for his entire life. Like I said, Anderson was a complex person, and his stories, some of which are long, arduous roads of self-discovery, speak to that complexity and to the painful feelings of being unaccepted or being forced into a life that isn't yours. If the stories are in any way representative of the author, I can only hope that Anderson, like Thumbelina, The Little Mermaid, the Ugly Duckling and others, found peace and love in his own life. That's it for this week. Next week, we're staying in the very nearly folklore but not really category with the frequently requested original story of Pinocchio. I want to say thanks to Rumbleinator, Raf, Clara Law, Marie H89, Kudingo, Pitcher Dog, Katie M, Nina Brina, Arcane Flex, Folky Girl, Wagwan70, No Match, Error, Steelforth, Joel A. Mannix, L.J. Cohen, Arjon, Sorrenti90, Heathen Melb, and Chemistry Cat for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. It's really great to hear from you, and thanks for taking the time to get on the app and do it. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place, and you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a camo spandex bodysuit, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, will not help you hunt deer while staying very, very, very invisible. The creature this week is the Gazarium from the United States. The Gazarium is, or, well, was, a three-legged shrimp. I say was 
because, well, it's extinct. You might think that they're extinct because they're really slow shrimp with three unnecessary legs, or that they're super easy to catch, and when they're fried up, they taste like french fries and tartar sauce in the late 1700s. I mean, can you imagine having french fries before the world knew about french fries? I would absolutely catch a weird three-legged shrimp and eat it. I would catch all the weird little three-legged shrimp, but that's not what happened. It was apparently a delicacy of the Kennebec tribes in the area, who had more self-control than I've ever had around all-you-can-eat fries, because for a long time, the Gazarium thrived, until they didn't. The numbers of Gazarium gradually diminished, and no one knew why, until in the 1800s, a, let's say scientist, stopped by and explained everything. The food the Gazariums were snacking on, the ones that gave them that debatably good tartar sauce tang, were their undoing. They were near microscopic forms of marine life, called the Sindae. They were the only food of the Gazarium, and that was good because the Sindae's only food was the eggs of the Gazarium. Both species ate the other into extinction, in an event that made everyone wonder why that hadn't happened years earlier. And so a continent mourned the loss of their little oily shrimp friends and the flavor that was never to be replicated again. Till about 10 years later, when everyone learned of actual french fries and the world was whole again. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more music in the show notes and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.